five years ago, Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr. were in danger of being indicted. That's according to a fascinating new article published in a joint effort by ProPublica, WNYC, and The New Yorker. According to the story, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office was building a case against the two for misleading prospective buyers of units in the new Trump Soho hotel and condo development. Then something unusual happened. Donald Trump Sr.'s personal attorney, Mark Kasowitz, got involved. He was a campaign contributor to District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr., and Kasowitz went directly to Vance. Three months later, the story says, Vance told his prosecutors to drop the case. With us to talk more about the story is one of the journalists behind it, Justin Elliott, a reporter for ProPublica, and Sean O'Shea. He's a partner at Boyce Schiller Flexner and the former chief of the business and securities fraud section in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Um, Justin, before we get into the Kasowitz-Vance interactions, uh, tell us more about the allegations. What was it that Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr. might have been indicted for? Sure. So this case centered on uh, a, a Trump building, the Trump Soho, which is a, a hybrid uh, hotel condo tower um, in downtown Manhattan. Uh, and um, the, the Trumps uh, were uh, had an equity stake in this building and also a licensing deal. Obviously, it had their name. Um, but the building, uh, they started selling units um, back in 2007, right as the financial crisis uh, was hitting. And these were also not normal uh, apartments. They they were this sort of strange hybrid where if you bought a unit, you actually only had the right to stay in it 120 nights a year. Uh, so they were having a lot of trouble selling these. And um, Ivanka and also Donald Jr. Uh, made a series of public statements about how well they were selling, uh, saying that they'd sold 55 percent, 60 percent. Turned out uh, those statements were false. Uh, you know, the building uh, by 2010 had only sold 15 percent, and um, several buyers actually filed a separate civil suit over these these inflated statements about how well the building was selling, um, essentially arguing that, uh, you know, these statements had uh, led them to believe that what they were buying was more valuable than it actually was. Um, and after they sued, uh, the district attorney uh, started looking into the same issue, and, and the, the charge would have been fraud. And before we move over to Sean, just tell us briefly, if you can, what you can about the sourcing for the article. You talked to a lot of people, and there were some emails involved. Tell us, tell us what you base the story on. Sure. So uh, we talked to over 20 people with knowledge of the case. Uh, we used public records public records, campaign finance records, um, and uh, some, of, some of the people uh, we granted anonymity, but um, we also quote people on the record, including uh, a, an attorney who is actually on the uh, defense team on the Trump side, uh, Paul Grant. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, we, we spent uh, a couple months on this, and, and we also interviewed Cy Vance and, uh, and reached out to Mark Kazowitz, and, and um, Vance uh, didn't dispute any of the any of the facts in the story. Uh, he did um, say that uh, he doesn't believe he did anything wrong here, and he made the right call on deciding not to indict. We'll talk more about uh, Cyrus Vance Jr. in a moment. Sean, um, tell us from your perspective as a former prosecutor and and now a private attorney, uh, a case like this, how easy or difficult would it have been for for prosecutors to to prove something like this? And maybe to refine the question a little bit, what's the difference in a case like this between uh, mere puffery and actual fraud committed by, by somebody? Well, I think the question is whether the statements about rate of sale are material to a buying decision. And 
you know, prosecutors, and I know when I was heading up the fraud unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office, they're very skeptical, generally, of cases, taking on cases where there's already a civil case pending. Um, and this case would have been, uh, even if even if the fact, I mean, it, it seems like the rate of sale alone would not be something that would impress me as a prosecutor uh, in a fraud case. Uh, it would uh, lend itself more on the, on the end of puffery. But I don't. I have to say, I don't know all the facts of the case. So, but just that fact alone would not be very impressive to me as as a prosecutor. So, one thing the story says is that there was a civil settlement uh, with the the, the prospective buyers, uh, in which they agreed not to cooperate with. Uh, criminal prosecutors unless they were subpoenaed. Is that, we only have about 30 seconds here, but I'm wondering, is that the sort of thing that that if you were in the prosecutor's office would make you considerably less likely to to press a case? Not necessarily, but I was a federal prosecutor. I think in in the state it might, uh, but not on a federal side. We're talking about the new story uh, published by ProPublica, WNYC, and The New Yorker that says that Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr. five years ago were in danger of being indicted. That was until there was a meeting between Donald Trump Sr.'s personal lawyer, Mark Kasowitz, and New York District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. Our guests are Justin Elliott, reporter at ProPublica, who's one of the reporters who broke the story, and Sean O'Shea, who's the former chief of the business and securities fraud section in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of New York. Uh, Justin, tell us uh, about this meeting between uh, Mark Kasowitz and Cyrus Vance Jr. and what about it uh, struck you as unusual. Sure. So this investigation by the Manhattan DA had had started in 2010. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, the, the Trump uh, side had um, hired a defense team of prominent prominent attorneys, uh, not not including Mark Kazowitz, and, and they'd been uh, trying to convince uh, prosecutors in the DA's office uh, not not to uh, seek an indictment in this case. Uh, the the uh, main defense attorney's arguments uh, hadn't been working, and um, Donald Trump Sr. was uh, frustrated with the progress of uh, of, of the defense, um, and uh, so Mark Kazowitz was called in. Now, people, uh, you know, probably remember Kazowitz uh, coming to national prominence this year when he, uh, for a while, anyways, was serving as President Trump's uh, outside counsel on the Russia investigation. Um, but he he he's uh, represented Trump in a number of matters going back to the early 2000s. Um, but he's primarily a civil litigator. He doesn't do a lot of criminal cases. So this was unusual for him. Um, so Kazowitz comes in, uh, requests and gets a meeting with Vance. Um, and, and Vance is somebody he knew because, as you mentioned, uh, he had Kazowitz had given Vance a dono- donation of $25,000 earlier that year, which made him one of Vance's biggest uh, single donors. Um, Vance uh, returned that donation just before the meeting. Uh, the office apparently has a policy uh, to return donations when... Um, somebody becomes involved in a case. Uh, they have the meeting. Um, a few months later, Vance uh, makes the call to, to not pursue the case. Um, and then uh, a month after the case is dropped, Kazowitz then reaches out to uh, Vance's campaign and says, I want to host a fundraiser for you. Um, so that happens a few months later. Kazowitz then gives uh, 
uh, over $30,000 uh, and, and a bunch of his uh, other partners also donate to Vance. Um, and uh, he then holds another fundraiser. And, and that money was not returned until uh, we started reporting the story and went to the DA's office. And uh, they told us that um, now, uh, four years, four or five years later, they're going to be returning those subsequent donations. So, you know, I think this was striking to us, that just the pattern of, of donation and return and then donation again uh, in, in the middle of this of this uh, potential prosecution uh, seemed uh, striking. And in fact, it was striking even to the other attorneys on uh, Trump's defense team, uh, well, one of well, whom... Well, yeah. let me, well, let me ask Sean what he, how striking he, he found it. Sean, from your standpoint, and of course you were in a different system, the federal system, um, how unusual is this sort of a meeting? Uh, it's not unusual at all, either on the federal side or the state side. It sounds like this is a difference in tactics. I wouldn't be surprised if Gary Naftalis and Paul Grant, who, by the way, are very prominent attorneys in their own right, also didn't give to the Cy Vance campaign. I think it's pretty common for firms, particularly large firms around the city, to support, particularly Cy Vance. He's very well regarded, very prominent in his own right, very ethically, uh, you know, stands in high repute. Um, uh, on all levels, it sounds like it's just a difference in 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 strategy that uh, Paul and Gary decided not to go to the the, the top, and um, and Mark Kazowitz did. Um, but the fact of donations um, that's not unusual. Um, it, it's it's a little unusual, and and maybe born out of his high sense of ethical propriety that Cy Vance would return these, uh, because I don't think that's required under the law or statute. So uh, it, this strikes me as just a difference in tactic more than an ethical failing on anybody's part. Uh, Ju- Justin, tell us what Paul Grand to- told you guys. He's one of the attorneys who was involved in the case, uh, represented. Uh, actually, why don't you tell us who you represented and, and what he told you about these uh, th- this meeting? Sure. So he actually technically represented uh, one of one of the high level brokers, uh, but on, on the Trump side, part of the the defense team representing the uh, the 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 sellers of this building. Um, and he told us, uh, look, it, well, first of all, um, Sean's right. It, it was a different of tactics, uh, a difference in tactics. Uh, they they um, the 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 lead uh, members of the defense team had been um, having a series of meetings with the sort of stat- lower level uh, prosecutors who were pursuing. This case, um, and they and they hadn't they hadn't uh, gone up to the level of Vance yet. Um, but Grant told us that look, he thought Grant thought that th- that dropping this case was the right call because uh, he didn't believe this this rose to the level of a crime. But he also told us, and I'm I'm quoting him here, that the the manner in which it was accomplished is curious. Uh, he said that. If, if you were, if you and I were district attorney and you knew that a subject of investigation was represented by two or three well thought of lawyers in town, and all of a sudden somebody who was a contributor to your campaign showed up on your doorstep, and the regular lawyers are nowhere to be seen, you'd think about how you'd want to proceed. I mean, that was again a, a verbatim quote from him. So, uh, you know, as I said, even other members of the defense team, uh, which Kazowitz really was was not a part of uh, outside of this this one meeting, um, thought this was was unusual. Sean, I'm going to do something unfair and give you about 10 seconds for, for a new question. No, which is, well, I'll, say, I'll, I'll okay. say this. No, no lawyer likes to be replaced when you're dealing with prominent targets of an investigation. Uh, it's not uncommon that, that uh, the, a client seeks alternative views. 
Uh, Paul Graham decided not to go to the top. Mark Kazowitz did. It sounds to me like a difference in tactic and not an ethical failing on anybody's part here. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank our guests, Sean O'Shea of Boyce Schiller Flexner and Justin Elliott of ProPublica.